Blessings flow. We begin today a series on the great, uh, some of the great battles in the Bible. And we begin in Exodus chapter 14, familiar story of the crossing of the Red Sea, the battle against the Egyptian army, mighty to save. I'm not going to read the chapter, it's familiar to us, but we'll be looking at these verses together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, He indeed is mighty to save. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. And we rejoice, O God, that we can come and worship you today because Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. He has washed us clean in the blood of the Lamb. He has given his life for us that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, bless the words of this passage of Scripture. Give us understanding into your truth, Lord. We know that your word is everlasting truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you discovered that things aren't always as they appear to be? That's a very important thing, isn't it? I remember at the Fly Convention several years ago. How many remember when Nick Vujicic spoke? He's the guy that was born with no arms and no legs. And they carried him up in the front, and he had a very powerful message that night. And they put him on a little table after the service was done, and there were literally hundreds of kids that came by and gave him a big bear hug. It was really a moving evening. And he illustrated that point that things aren't always as they appear to be by telling a story about himself as he was sitting in the front seat of the car. And another vehicle pulled up to him. Now remember, he has no arms and legs, so when he was sitting on the seat of the car, you know, he was basically sitting on his hips, and the car comes up next to him, and he looks at them and smiles, and then he does this little thing where he turns completely around. (laughs) And he says, I always love to do that because people would look and think, What in the world am I seeing? Things don't always look as they appear. It is good for us to remember this because there are times in our lives when things at least appear to be hopeless. Situations that we might find ourselves in that, you know, there there is no hope here. People who have wasted their lives in sin, and you look at them and you say, what are the chances that this person would be saved? Things aren't always as they appear to seem because God is able to rescue and deliver. The people of Israel discovered this when they were in bondage in the land of Egypt. It appeared as if there was no hope for them. But the Lord was fully aware of their circumstances and He came to the rescue. He saved them from a very great and terrible bondage. But now they were in another situation that appeared to be hopeless. They needed to be rescued again. And the one who is mighty to save gave them a promise that He would save them. Look at verse 13 of our text. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. 
stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. So what do we learn about salvation from this text? The first thing we learn is this, that God saves us from a powerful enemy. If the people of Israel traveled by the shortest route from Egypt to the Promised Land, it would have taken them about two weeks. But you'll notice that God had a very different plan for them. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back. Notice that. To turn back. And camp before Pihiroth, I don't think I said that right, between Migdol and the sea, and you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So instead of heading what was probably east-southeast, they were now heading north to the very banks of the Red Sea. And it appeared in the eyes of the Egyptians as if they were wandering around in the desert in a state of confusion. So notice what Pharaoh did, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots. And all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them while all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. Now Pharaoh had obviously not learned his lesson yet, had he? The land of Egypt had just been decimated by the ten plagues that the Lord had sent. But Pharaoh started thinking about all the work that the Israelites had done for him. All the cities that they had built for him. And he thought, I want them back. I need them back. So he mustered his army not realizing that he was leading them into a great defeat. And his army would soon be drowned in the depths of the sea. I can't help but see this as a picture of what God has done with our powerful enemy. Like Pharaoh, Satan wants us to serve him, and he has done everything he could to keep us from being rescued. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He entered Judas in order to lead him to betray Jesus. And when Jesus went to the cross, Satan figured that he had finally defeated Jesus and that those who followed him would forever be his. They would be ever be his servants. They would never be rescued. 
But we know the cross did not defeat Jesus. It was the cross that defeated Satan. He was judged at the cross because Jesus is mighty to save. Philip Riken, in his commentary, explains this well. He says, If this strategy seems familiar, it is because God used it again when He sent His Son to the cross. To Satan must have seemed like Jesus had no idea what He was doing. He was God the Son, yet He allowed Himself to be handed over to sinful men who stripped Him and beat Him and crucified Him. On the cross, He was so vulnerable that Satan thought He had the strategic advantage and he pressed it to the death. But of course, this was his fatal mistake because the whole thing was a ruse. The cross was not a defeat for Jesus, but a victory. By making atonement, he was able to gain eternal victory over sin, death, and Satan. And thus the Bible says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So God is the one who saves us from a powerful enemy, and He did it through a cross. We've been rescued from bondage, and now we are free. Praise God for that. God saves us from a powerful enemy. The second thing we learn about salvation is that God saves us with a powerful hand. Very interesting phrase. You'll find that four times in chapter 13, the previous chapter. In verse 3, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 9, It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and on... And remember on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. We find that again in verse 14, again in verse 16, this really interesting picture of God delivering His people with a powerful hand. Which reminds me of a very powerful hand that I shook several times when I was younger. It was the hand of a farmer who had milked cows for 40 years. And I'll tell you what, when you put your hand into Walt Myla's hand, you thought you were grabbing a catcher's mitt. I mean, his hand was so big. And then he would grab your hand and he'd look at your eyes. And then little by little, he'd squeeze. And you try not to flinch. But sooner or later, I'll tell you what, that grip, there was no way. I mean, if he, he could put you literally on your knees if he wanted to. It was such a powerful hand. God is a powerful hand. And he delivered his people with a powerful hand. Now, if you think that God did that because... They were such wonderful people. No, that was not the case. God had made a promise to Abraham, and he was going to fulfill that promise. And he did it in some very miraculous ways. We saw 
The ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt, the flies and the frogs and the hail and the boils and the darkness and all of that, which, by the way, were really judgments against the false gods of the Egyptians. But an interesting thing in those plagues is that God made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. The flies, they went on the people of Egypt, but not the people of Israel. The cattle of the Egyptians were killed, but not the cattle of the Israelites. Hail came on the people of Egypt, but not on the Israelites. Darkness came upon Egypt, but not upon the Israelites in Goshen. God's powerful hand in operation there. And God did not want them to forget this. And that's why you find in chapter 13, verse 14, there was this consecration of the firstborn of man and animal. And in verse 14, it it says, And it shall be when your son asks you, in time to come, saying, What is this? Okay, Dad, why do we do this? Why is the firstborn of man or animal consecrated to God? Then you shall say, here's what it is, son, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. A powerful hand, mighty to save. So God had delivered them from Egypt under those miraculous plagues, and now they were faced with another challenge. Would they remember what God had done? Would they remember that He had delivered them out of bondage through these signs and wonders? Would they trust that God was able again to deliver them with His powerful hand? Sadly, the answer is no. In spite of all that they had just witnessed, all that they had just seen of God's power when the Egyptian army came against them and they had their backs to the Red Sea, Instead of saying, God, we trust you. God, we believe that you will deliver us. What did they do? Look at verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And if you think that's the only time they talked about going back to Egypt, you need to read your Bible again, because this happened over and over again. Moses, why did you lead us here? Let's elect someone to go back to Egypt. Let's stone Moses. We should have died in the wilderness. It was just like a broken record over and over and over again. But Moses was a man of faith, a man who trusted God's promise. And he knew that Pharaoh's army was no match for God's powerful hand. And so he challenged the people to look to the Lord. He said in verse 13, Do not fear. 
Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I wonder if that was Moses' nice way of saying, shut up, okay? Stop your complaining. See what God will do. This is the God with a powerful hand. This is the God that led you out of Egypt. See what He will do. Watch. And then the Lord told Moses exactly what to do. Verse 16, He says, As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Now, I would call that a miracle, wouldn't you? That God was able. He knew exactly what He was doing. He knew exactly that the Egyptians were going to push His people against the Red Sea. But God had a solution. Moses, just put your rod up and the sea will be divided. And we know the rest of the story. That's exactly what happened. Big wall of water on both sides. The, the ground underneath was dry. The people of Israel marched through there. And then along came the Egyptians. And Moses put his staff up again and the, the water covered them all. And they had a song celebration. Chapter 15, I will sing unto the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The mighty hand of God. So what the people of Israel could have never done in themselves. They could have never done it in themselves. God did for them. He saved them by His powerful hand. And there is a lesson for that to us, isn't there as well? What we could never do to save ourselves, God has done it for us. Read in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul describes what we are by nature. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. That's our natural state, our hopeless state. If you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline the next two words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God. There's the answer, isn't it? And you find that phrase in several places in Paul's writings where he presents our, our, our helpless, hopeless condition and then 
But God did something about it. God entered the picture through His Son, Jesus Christ. And with a powerful, mighty hand, He saved us. Praise God for that. He saves us from a powerful enemy. He saves us with a powerful hand. And then thirdly, notice that God saves us for a powerful purpose. God has a reason for saving us. He didn't save the people of Israel because they were such wonderful people. He didn't look at them and say, you know what, I want you on my team because you're so nice. (laughs) You're so loving and kind and you love me and you trust me and you obey me. It was not that way. He had made a promise to Abraham. And God was faithful to that promise. And as you examine what God did to save the people of Israel, it's clear why He did it. One reason He did it is to show the Egyptians who He is. To show the world who He is. Look at verse 4. The Lord said, I I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Chapter uh, Verse 17 and 18, we see the same thing. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's why God did it. God wanted to show the people of the world who He is. And He did that by delivering His people. By saving them from bondage. By bringing them into the promised land. They were a testimony of God's power and grace. Philip Riken says, Any military strategist would have recognized immediately that the Israelites were trapped. Which is exactly what God wanted Pharaoh to think. By putting His people between the desert and the sea, God would show the Egyptians that He was the Lord. And that the glory of the victory belonged to Him alone. Isn't that true? The glory of that victory belonged to God and to God alone. Why does God save us? It is not because we are so wonderful. Perish that thought. Why does God save us? God wants the world to see through us who He is. And when it is obvious that something has happened in our lives that could have only been done by God, then He gets the glory, right? As He should. We sing in the hymn, To God be the glory, great things He has done. He has done. Delivering us with a powerful hand that He might show the world, that they might know who He is. And then God also saved His people that that they might trust Him. I find it interesting to notice the change that took place in the hearts of the people. When Pharaoh's army came against them, they wanted to go back to Egypt because they doubted that God could save them. But after he delivered them, I want you to notice the end of the chapter. 
Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And notice this phrase, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I agree with one author who said this. He said, the crossing of the Red Sea brought glory to God by convincing the Israelites to believe in God which may have been the greatest miracle of all. <laughs> Think of that. That may have been the greatest miracle of all, that, that this would cause these people who doubted and doubted and doubted and doubted and complained to put their trust in God, to believe Him. As we leave this passage this morning, I want to make sure that we apply this text as it was intended to be applied. I do not believe the lesson in this story is that the Red Sea is a picture of our problems and that God will always make a way through them. I've heard sermons like that where the Red Sea is the problem and God will always, always make a way through the problem. I believe the application is much greater than that. It has an eternal application because it applies to our salvation. That's what it pictures for us. Our salvation. The New Testament describes the saving work of Christ in terms of an exodus. Did you know that? In Luke chapter 9, we have the story of the transfiguration. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John, remember on the mountain, and his Appearance became like lightning. And there was uh, Moses and Elijah. And verse 31 says that Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. You know what that word departure is literally? It's exodus. His departure. His exodus. Philip Reichen says what happened at the Red Sea ought to help us clarify our relationship to Christ. The only Red Sea experience that really matters is the one that Jesus had. When He passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. This means that Christians have already had their exodus experience. We had it at Calvary and in the garden tomb because when Jesus died and rose again, He did it for us. We were included in these saving events, and now we are safe on the other side. All that remains for us to do is what the Israelites did, to fear God and trust Him as we move forward. It is our identity with Jesus Christ that saves us. His death becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His exodus becomes our exodus out of bondage into a right relationship with the Father. So I ask you this morning, are you trusting in what God did? What Jesus did? Are you resting in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross when He paid the price 
for your sins. Let me remind you, you certainly don't have the power to save yourself. There is no way that you are going to deliver yourself from bondage. There is no good thing that you could do to ever in any way merit any favor with God. We are powerless. And we have a powerful enemy. And there's no one that can deliver us from that powerful enemy except our mighty God, our Savior. Romans 5, 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So who are we? We are ungodly and we are helpless. But Jesus died for the helpless. Don't believe what people tell you that God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that false teaching before? There's, there's, no, there's no help in ourselves. Who does God help? He helps the helpless. Who does He save? He saves the hopeless. And that's you. And that's me. Horatio Spafford put it this way, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. He got it right, didn't he? It's a helpless estate that we have. But Christ has shed his own blood for our soul. There was a man on a business trip, and he settled into his hotel room when he heard a very unusual noise. And so he went out in the hallway, and he could hear someone yelling from a nearby hotel room. And so he called a hotel worker, and they discovered that a man had been trapped in the bathroom. The lock on the bathroom door had malfunctioned and he was trapped inside and he was starting to panic. He felt like he couldn't breathe and all he could do was begin yelling for help. And the hotel man came with the right key and set him free. Maybe it's time to cry out for help. Lord, I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I'm sinful. I'm lost. I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. Like the people of Israel, you have a powerful enemy. But you have a God who is mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a a mighty God. Mighty to save. And just as you delivered your people with a powerful hand. You led them out of bondage. Lord, you're the one that saves us today. We sang this morning, you are the one who saves. You are the one who saves. Thank you for that gift of salvation. Thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you provided a Savior for us. And you offer to us that free gift of everlasting life to all who receive him, to those who believe
On the name of Jesus, you have given the right to be called the children of God. Lord, help us to embrace by your spirit that good news today, the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves. We pray in his name. Amen.